Thank you very much, all of you, for coming. I'm delighted to see you here. Such an absolutely beautiful place to be in. I'm sure you ordered this weather just on my behalf, and I'm very grateful. Thank you very much. Um, the title is the title of the book that Nick Stenick and I have recently edited, and I will get to international research collaborations, but I've actually been asked to talk about three things. I've been asked to talk to empirical evidence from work that I've done over the past 10, 12 years on the area of research integrity, because this is a series on research integrity. I've also been asked about what, we sh what should be done with regard to research integrity, and then finally some of the complications introduced by international research collaborations in the area of research integrity. So just to make sure that you don't have a sense that you're here under false pretenses, I will, I will get to in international research collaborations. I'm going to begin by reviewing how U.S. institutions have come to pay attention to research integrity. Scientists have long been committed to the principle of self-regulation. We ourselves will take care of the ethical dimensions of our research. But then, a series of misconduct scandals in the late 1970s and early 1980s led the U.S. Congress to take action, and one of the results was a highly developed system of policies and instruction in the responsible conduct of research. Now, here's how it worked at my own institution, the University of Minnesota. University of Minnesota is a very large institution. We have 50,000 students, approximately 3,000 federally supported researchers at any given time. Um, it's always been a place where scholarly independence and individualism are dominant. Then, about 20 years ago, Dr. John Nigerian, a famous transplant surgeon, was accused and indeed was guilty of manufacturing and selling um, a transplant drug without approval of the federal government, without approval of anybody, really. He was also guilty of mismanaging millions of dollars of research grant money from the, the, the federal government. Um, as a result, the federal government put the University of Minnesota on exceptional status. This is a very bad thing. Exceptional status is terrible. Um, it meant that every dollar from the federal government that came to the University of Minnesota was restricted and controlled for a five-year period. And during that five-year period, the University of Minnesota had to do a great deal of work to get off exceptional status. It had to develop an extraordinarily broad research integrity program. It had to completely revamp all all of its financial record-keeping systems and essentially revamp how it did medical education. So exceptional status was a very bad thing that had very good consequences because now we have one of the most highly developed systems for research integrity in the United States. Now the problem is it's not exactly clear what approach is best to ensuring integrity. We took this approach because we were forced to do so by the federal government. And we are held up as a model for how to do research integrity. But it's not clear that what we're doing is the best. And certainly, it's not clear that our model should be transferred to, to institutions outside the US. Um, I'm going to talk about the research that my colleagues and I have done and its implications for research integrity. Um, as Catherine mentioned, I've been working in this area for about 25 years. Our findings are based on two data sources, the first being a series of focus groups we did nationwide with 51 scientists in the biomedical sciences, 
and on a 2002 survey of mid and early career scientists. The uh, mid career scientists were all federally funded, as were the early career scientists. They were all supported by the National Institutes of Health. The early career scientists are what we call in the US postdoctoral fellows. And the research was um, funded, the research itself, our study was funded by the National Institutes of Health. And my collaborators are Brian Martinson and Raymond DeVries. Now, first I want to make a clear distinction between what we call misconduct, according to the federal definition of misconduct, and misbehaviors, which are something short of misconduct. Misconduct, according to the US federal definition, is fabrication, falsification, or plagiarism in proposing, performing, or reviewing research, or in reporting research results. Okay, it's what we call FFP. By contrast, misbehavior is any behavior that compromises the integrity of research in some way or other. It's often called questionable research practices. I understand that my, my friend and colleague Nick Stenick was here a year ago and talked about questionable research practices. Um, in fact, I listened to his talk, and he, talk, he mentioned four or five of our studies. He just mentioned them. I'm here to give you the detail um, and, and what he was talking about last year. In our surveys, we asked about scientists' own misbehaviors. We asked about them in these categories. First, misconduct. That would be FFP, fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism. And we also asked about behaviors in these eight different areas. Now, it's important to understand we didn't say, have you done these things wrong? We simply asked, have you engaged in any of the following behaviors, not labeling them as misbehaviors or anything. We asked about 33 behaviors in these categories. Um, mis misuse of data, mis inappropriate uh, methods, um, violation of policies, inappropriate use of funds, inappropriate outside influence, that's largely conflict of interest, inappropriate peer review, inappropriate assignment of intellectual credit, that's the authorship issues, cutting corners and general carelessness. And it's important to understand that we asked the scientists about their own behaviors within the previous three years. So we asked, have you or have you not engaged in each of the following behaviors within the past three years? Now, you might ask, would scientists tell us that they had misbehaved? And the answer is, well, yes, as a matter of fact, they did. Here are the results. Here are the percentages of scientists who said they had engaged in the indicated misbehavior, some misbehavior within the indicated category within the previous three years. Now, thankfully, the FFP lines are very low. Um, this represents 1.7% over three years. That translates to roughly six cases out of every 6,000 scientists over the past three years. The blue lines are for the mid-career people. The green lines are for the early career people or the postdoctoral fellows. Now, again, sigh of relief, FFP levels are low. But look at those other levels. Those are behaviors that are questionable, that are, many would argue, far more likely to compromise the integrity of research because they are so prevalent. Okay? So this is not at all a reassuring chart. Even, in fact, FFP is not very reassuring. Six out of 1,000 per year. My own institution has approximately 3,000 uh, federally supported researchers. That would indicate 18 cases 
of federally prosecutable misconduct per year at my own institution. Okay, there are 100 institutions like my own in the U.S., not counting all the smaller research universities. We, that indicates an enormous amount of misbehavior, federally prosecutable misbehavior. By contrast, the federal agencies that monitor and deal with misconduct are um, dealing with approximately 25 cases per year. Okay? They're missing a lot. And this, of course, is self-reported misbehavior. This is scientists saying, yes, yes, I engaged in that misbehavior. Now, we also ask the scientists, have you seen colleagues engaging in any of these, any of these behaviors? Same, same list of 33. Okay, what would you expect? Well, you're right. <laughs> the lines go up. Now, in fact, federally prosecutable FFP is at 49%. Now, this in no way represents incidents, because we could have people for all from the same department, five people all saying, yes, I knew about that incident. It was the same incident. So this is not, this is not incidents. Okay. And in fact, just because someone says they saw a colleague doing something wrong, that doesn't mean the colleague was actually doing something wrong. So this is not incidents, but it's a measure of exposure. This does represent the percentages of our respondents who believe that they were exposed to misbehaviors um, within that three-year period. And in fact, rather large numbers of people say that they have seen a colleague engaging in what they believe to be FFP. Again, not incidents. This is not as powerful a chart as the one I just showed you. It's just a measure of exposure. Now, it's a relief to see back here that FFP is so low. But what about the connection between federally prosecutable FFP and these other behaviors? Okay, Is there any connection at all? If you're engaging in these other behaviors, are you more or less likely to be engaging in FFP? Or are they essentially independent kinds of behaviors? Well, if we look ahead, these are all FFP rates. All of these are FFP rates, rates of federally prosecutable misbehavior. The red line indicates the percentage, the FFP rate for people who are engaging in the indicated misbehavior. So in the first one, of those who are already saying that they're engaging in mis misbehavior in the intellectual credit category, 4.9% are saying that they had engaged in misconduct within the previous three years. That's opposed to the 1.7% overall. Of those who were not engaging in a misbehavior in the intellectual ca uh, credit category, only 1.1% were engaging in federally prosecutable misconduct. Okay, so a fourfold difference. If you look at policy, the third one down, policy, now we see an 11-fold increase in the likelihood of engaging in federally prosecutable misconduct if you're already engaging in misbehavior in terms of violating policies, written policies. So that should make anyone a little nervous. If someone is in a laboratory, you know, cutting corners, doing things they shouldn't be doing in other areas, they're also more at risk of engaging in the really serious misconduct. And I hesitate to add that misconduct as it's defined in the United States is different from misconduct defined by other governments, by other national bodies. It's not always FFP. But at least in the U.S., we should be worried about those questionable research behaviors. So the question is, what is going on in the research environment? And our studies looked um, in some detail at this question. 
We've examined several dimensions of the research environment. We have looked at, for example, the extent to which scientists see their environments as cooperative or competitive. Now, we learned about competitive behaviors in our focus groups. For example, um, one scientist told us that he had done this on several occasions. He had completed a research grant. He had completed work entirely, a completed a research project, and then submitted a grant to the federal to the federal government to do that project. Okay, it's already done. Now, in the grant, he left out indication of one critical step called Step X. So when the review committee looks at it, they say, hmm, that looks really good, could be very good, but it also looks a little questionable because we don't think you can do Step X. If you could do Step X, we would fund it. Well, he's already done it. So now he submits it in revised form, Step X is there, and they fund it. It's already done. And of course, he uses the money to do the next research project and continues on. Totally fraudulent, but it's a way of, of enhancing his competitive advantage in the system. Um, we also learned about people scooping their competitors. Of course, people take photographs of, of uh, posters at conferences and then go back to the laboratory and finish the work before it's done. Now we understand from nature that people can be Twittering and blogging during the presentation. I don't want to see any Twittering going on here. Uh, but we hear that that happens frequently, that people are being scooped by um, people sending messages back during the conference presentations. Um, other uh, competitive behavior, we heard about people keeping promising students by writing them bad letters of recommendation, but we also heard about faculty keeping unpromising students knowing that they would never finish their degrees just because they needed that pair of hands in the laboratory and keeping them for years just because they needed the work done, because those students were there and able to help their own, the, the investigator's own competitive advantage. But the, the investigator knew that they, they would never actually finish. Okay, the second environmental fact we looked at was norms and counter norms. We looked at several different aspects of this. We made use of the classic Mertonian norms, Robert Merton's uh, four norms. Um, which aren't perfect, but they, they served our purposes for this study, communality, the sense that um, all research should be owned and shared within the scientific community, universalism, the principle that uh, work should be evaluated on the basis of its own merits, not on the personal characteristics of the investigators, disinterestedness, the principle that work should be done for its scientific value, not for any uh, possibility of personal gain, and organized skepticism, the principle that uh, research should be open for review um, if, to all the scientific community. And that this work was done back in the 1940s. Later on, about 30 years later, Ian Mitroff, in his study of the Apollo moon scientists, identified counter norms that work in that scientific environment that were point for point counter to the Mertonian norms. Based on our own further work, we added two norms, governance as a principle for decision-making and quality as a principle for measuring uh, the value of work done, as opposed to counter-norms, administration, and quantity. Um, we asked our respondents the extent to which they subscribed to the norms and to the counter-norms. 
And this chart shows you that. These are the means of the responses overall for all our respondents. The mean uh, in blue is the subscription to the norms. The mean in red is subscription to the counter norms. So almost everyone believes very strongly in the norms. That's good news. But substantial percentages of people are also subscribing to those counter-normative principles. And these are independent. Uh, faculty or uh, our respondents didn't have to choose one or the other. They could indicate subscription to the norms, subscription to the counter-norms. OK, now we also asked the extent to which scientists saw their colleagues' behavior as according with the norms or counter-norms. Okay, now the second one, first we had subscription, now we have behavior. Does your colleague's behavior accord with the norms or counter-norms? Okay, you can develop your own hypothesis. Hypothesis in place, you're probably right. Okay, others' behavior is much less likely to accord with the norms than with the counter-norms. The situation's reversed. Scientists see their, their colleagues' behavior as according with those counter-norms. Okay, particularism, self-interestedness, organized dogmatism. Now we said, what about your own behavior? Okay, where does your own behavior fall? And predictably enough, well, it's somewhere in between. I may not live up to my ideals, but at least I'm not as bad as those folks over there are. Okay, now we also, uh, going back to the research environment, we also asked about um, scientists' sense of organizational injustice. We asked about the extent to which scientists see injustice or unfairness in their environments. Uh, people getting unfair advantages or systematic unfairness in research. Now the question we asked is, what do these parts of the research environment have to do with misbehavior? Okay. Well, now the following charts are based on a set of logistic regressions we did to connect the environmental uh, factors over on the left with self uh, self-admitted misconduct in the first column, and misbehaviors across the top. And I'm just going to show you where the significant findings were, the significant relationships by logistics regressions that control for discipline, they control for gender, and they control for whether the, the um, respondent's training was in the U.S. or outside the U.S. And I'm sorry, that's, that's as good a measure as we had on our survey. So if you are in an environment that you see as highly cooperative, would you expect more or less misbehavior? Well, now to key you in here, green is good. Green means less misbehavior. Okay, red is bad. So if you're in a cooperative environment, more or less misbehavior, hypothesis in place, yes, of course, there's a lot of green there. Okay, if you're in a cooperative environment, you are less likely to be engaging in misbehavior. The M's refer to the mid-career people, the, the E for the early career people. Okay, so especially for the mid-career people, if they're in a, a cooperative environment, less misbehavior. What about competitive? Mm, you guessed. A lot of red. Now just look at that. In every category except one, including FFP, for the mid-career scientists. These are the people who have big federal grants. They're supported by the National Institutes of Health. If they see themselves in competitive fields, and of course most of them do, these are biomedical scientists, they are more likely to be engaging in misbehaviors and federally prosecutable misconduct. Okay, what about the norms? We didn't ask about subscription, or we didn't look at subscription here, but we did look at are you in an environment 
that you see as normative or an environment that you see as counter-normative. Okay, so if you're in a normative environment, if you see yourself as being in a normative environment, more or less misbehavior, well, sure, less. A counter-normative environment, you got it, okay, more misbehavior. These are scientists reporting on their own misbehaviors in those counter-normative environments. Counter-normative environments and competitive environments are, can be seen as, as uh, much the same. Now, what about if you see yourself in an environment that's characterized by injustice, organizational, institutionalized injustice, unfairness, and alienation? Are you more or less likely to try to adjust the situation to enhance your own competitive advantage? Well, sure. That was our strongest finding of all, the relationship between a sense of injustice in the environment and those misbehaviors. And based on this, this finding here, we submitted and received a second grant to do uh, further analysis of this connection between injustice in the environment and misbehaviors. I'm not reporting on that study today. Okay, that's bad news. So, enough bad news. In the U.S. at least, we have seen training as our greatest hope in countering this very, very bad situation. Okay, if you can train people not to misbehave, maybe we'll, we'll do better. Okay, so training and mentoring to the rescue. Well, I'm going to show you now our analyses that are much the same, that are now connecting training and mentoring to those same misbehaviors across the top. Same, same dependent variables, logistic regressions, controlling for discipline and gender and so on. Um, here we looked at instruction of three kinds. Instruction that was separate from their science, that was combined with their science, or those who had both. Okay. We also looked at different forms of mentoring. Mentoring in the area of ethics, specifically in ethics. Mentoring with regard to how to conduct research. Mentoring with regard to the financial issues in doing research. Mentoring with re regard to survival how to survive as a scientist in the scientific world, and a sense of personal mentoring, a personal connection between mentor and mentee. Okay, now, these are the, the, the useful interventions, right? We would hope to see a great deal of green here. Now, for this first slide, I'm showing you just the results for the mid-career people. Okay, mid-career people. There it is. Not much. There's not much connection between training and mentoring and self-avowed misbehavior. And that's too bad. But on the other hand, these people were trained before there was a great deal of training in the U.S. So maybe, maybe this isn't the right group. Maybe we should be looking at the early career people. Okay, now these people fell under the, the federal mandates for training. Okay, so we would hope they fell under the federal mandates and they uh, are much closer to their training, so we'd expect a lot more green. Okay, well, thank goodness, finally some good news. Except, hmm, it's not under instruction. It's not the instruction that is keeping people from misbehaving. In fact, instruction was simply not connected to whether or not they were misbehaving, but the mentoring is. The mentoring appears to have very good effects on these younger scientists, and that's a very hopeful finding until I show you the whole picture. Oh, we not only had 
negative effects, but positive relationships. Positive relationships between, in one case, uh, training and misuse of data. Who knows? They may have become aware of all these ways they could manipulate data. I mean, that, that would be unfortunate indeed. Or maybe they just became aware that the things that they were doing fell, um, fell all along into these, these categories of, of misbehavior. It's hard to, hard to interpret that one. But the more interesting finding is down here in the survival row. Take a look at that. In three forms of misbehavior and FFP, people are more likely to be engaging in the misbehavior if they've had training in survival. How to survive, how to succeed, how to get ahead, how to compete. Those are the people who are learning from their mentors how to make it in science. And they are more likely to misbehave. That's a really, really disturbing um, set of connections, I believe. Now the question is, what should be done in light of all this to foster and ensure research integrity? Well, I'm going to go through again the steps that have been taken in the U.S. in part to show you what might be useful, in part to show you the folly of, of some of the trajectory we've followed in the U.S. And you can learn from both our experience and our folly. In the beginning, there was self-regulation. And what does that mean? It essentially means that the scientific community is regulating, not that any individual is regulating his or her own behavior, but that the scientific community is self-regulating. Okay, so science overall is assumed to be self-correcting through verification, replication, exposure, peer review, and so on. And the miscreants will be exposed through the incorrectness of the science itself. Scientific communities also hold up exemplars of, if not ideal, at least very good behavior. And of course, there are all those hortatory expressions of support for science. And scientists train the, the youngsters through um, specific instruction and mentoring and all is well. That's self-regulation in action. Then something goes wrong. And the self-regulatory mechanisms take over and the misconduct goes away. Then something else goes wrong. And the scientific community again handles it and it goes away until something really bad happens that the scientific community cannot keep a lid on. And then other bodies become involved, and by which I mean the government. The government steps in and says, you are no longer self-regulating. You are no longer doing a good enough job of regulating the ethical aspects of research. We are going to step in, and that is the advent of regulation. Regulation which is mandatory, codes of ethics which are voluntary, policies which may be mandatory or voluntary. In the U.S., as I mentioned, that started about 1980. And most of the action has centered around two bodies, the Office of Research Integrity for the, for the Biomedical Sciences and the National Science Foundation's Office of the Inspector General for the Physical Sciences and the Social Sciences. Now, once you have regulations and codes, you have to have training to teach people, particularly the young ones. In the U.S., training has been mandated for about 10 years in the biomedical scientists for the, for the uh, principal investigators. And as of last year, 
National Science Foundation in the physical sciences and social sciences is mandating training for everyone who is supported by that money, by NSF money. So that includes the graduate students, the postdocs, the staff, everybody has to be trained. And do we have training? We have resources. Um, in, on the handout, there's actually a list of four websites. I list the University of Minnesota's website because it's so good. That's something I should be proud of, except now you know the history. It's so good because we had such a bad case at the University of Minnesota. I've also listed the Online Ethics Center, which is supported by NSF. I've listed um, the Office of Research Integrity, which is in the biomedical area. And I've listed a website run by my colleague, um, Mike Kalichman, as well. All, all good references, all good sources of material for teaching students what they need to know about uh, proper conduct in research. And we have books and online training modules and cases and scenarios. And, and um, we, we, in our courses, I teach a course in the Responsible Conduct of Research, we ask the students about their experiences with research misconduct. It's a bit like asking students about their experiences with sex. You know, you're, you're, you're loath to bring it up. You really don't want to raise the issue. And then you do raise the issue and find out they're, they're having all kinds of experiences in that area, unfortunately. So you'd better talk about it. It's better talk about it. It's, it's, they're already engaged. So you better talk about it. We also have confidential reporting systems, which have a training function, because those confidential uh, reporting systems are not just to protect whistleblowers, but they're also to provide an avenue for confidential advice if someone is a little unsure about handle, handling a situation that appears to be misconduct or misbehavior. So those confidential reporting systems can be part of the training uh, system. We also have interventions and oversight, spot checks by the government. NSF will show up and say, we want to know what your programs are, are doing about research integrity. The government requires assurances of compliance before it will um, release any money to any institution. And at least at my own institution, not everywhere, but again because of our troubles, um, at our, my own institution, if an individual faculty member is out of compliance, that, that faculty member's money is cut off and that person does not have access to federal money unless that person as an individual is brought into compliance. So these are the steps toward research integrity, except self-regulation is inadequate. I mentioned that there are many, according to our estimates, there are many, many cases of research misconduct and many, many more cases of misbehavior going on, even though the federal government is only becoming aware of and handling to about 25 per year. Um, in my own courses, I ask the students to take the survey that um, I've just shown you the results on. And I can't give you details, but I can just tell you in general that those students show higher levels of misbehavior pretty much across the board. They're a bit younger. They're graduate students and postdocs. But there's a lot that, that self-regulation is missing. And of course, it's, it's really not dealing very effectively at all with the misbehaviors, which are on top of the misconduct. What about misconduct? Well, it's a very unfortunate trigger because if you wait for misconduct or if you're focusing on misconduct, then you're in crisis mode. And what do the scientists do? They condemn it they, or they explain it away by individual pathology or evil. I had a physicist who said to me, the, I'm doing the science right. I'm behaving properly. 
Those people over there who are misbehaving aren't even scientists. They should be in jail. Okay, so that's it, scientists cut themselves off from misconduct when it shows up as a big case. But once the media and government get hold of the situation, it's a black and white issue. It's good versus evil. And there's a great deal of urgency to do something, to be seen as taking real action in response to that misconduct. And that's not a good environment to produce a, a thoughtful response to what's going on in the environment. Regulations and codes are often very limited in impact. Our results show that training can be ineffective and mentoring can be counterproductive. Interventions are greatly resented by scientists, as you can imagine. And the research system itself, which is so prominent in our findings, is largely ignored in this context. So how can we fix the situation, especially in light of our empirical findings? Well, first, let's take that matter of self-regulation. One of my students calls self-regulation the, the fingers-crossed approach to misconduct. Just You're all hoping nothing will go wrong, that none of your colleagues, that none of your students, that not your supervisor will be doing anything that's wrong. But the scientific associations rely on individuals to act selflessly to verify, replicate, and expose wrongdoing, often counter to their own self-interests. A better approach would be collective responsibility, which endows every individual and the scientific community together and jointly with a joint and collective responsibility to ensure research integrity. You'll see what I mean by that in a minute. Instead of waiting for misconduct, or focusing on misconduct, it would be better for scientists to openly acknowledge and to take collective responsibility for the ethical complexity of their work, to take collective responsibility for all that complexity, for the situations in which good and bad blur, because they are many in science. Science, the ethical aspects of science, are not just black and white. There's a great deal of gray area. And so instead of cutting themselves off, from those people who falsify or fabricate. It would be better to have open, lively, engaged discussions about situations in which it's appropriate to alter digital images, as opposed to situations in which it's actually a matter of falsification, or situations in which self-plagiarism really isn't anything that's bad, as opposed to situations in which self-plagiarism introduces falsification into the research record. In other words, engagement is better than polarization. What's wrong with regulations and codes? I recently saw a comment from a British scientist who said that the US system of regulation was appallingly bureaucratic. And I agree. I wouldn't wish it on any other country. But good policy and good codes are very valuable in this context. And what do I mean by good or improved policy or codes? First. What needs to be improved is harmonization. Where good policies and codes have been developed, they should be used in the development of further policies and codes so that people aren't constantly reinventing the wheel. So that what can be generalized should be generalized. But then what must be localized should be localized. There's a difference in dealing with human subjects in the context of anthropology as opposed to clinical research. 
So where harmonization is possible, it should be done. Where localization is necessary, it should be done. So better policies and codes that build on past experience but modify it as necessary. And by the way, as Catherine knows, I did a study on codes for a conference last summer. We examined hundreds of codes, and it was very interesting to find incidences of plagiarism within those codes of ethics. Um, what about training? We have evidence, of course, that training isn't always effective, but it's even worse. Because when you're in classes uh, learning about research or uh, proper behavior, um, the classes are often taught by ethics types. They're not taught by the scientists. And so the, sci the, the young scientists shut down, don't pay attention, because it's not the scientist talking, it's some person who talks about ethics. They'll go through the course, learn it, fine, and then they forget it. Online training is even worse. Much of it is a matter of reading pages and pages and pages, and then taking tests, which can often be a joke. One of my own students had to take online training to work with human subjects. It was required in this particular instance. And I told her about it, and she went away. And the training was six, seven hours, something like that. She came back half an hour later. And as she was leaving, I reminded her to go and do that training. She said, well, I did. I said, what do you mean you did? And she said, well, it looked like a lot of reading, so I didn't read it. I took the tests, and I did well enough that I passed, and I was certified in a matter of about 20 minutes. Bogus, absolutely bogus. Um, in some cases, we've also learned that stu a student in the laboratory will take the test and then share the answers with all the other people in the laboratory so they can take the test even more quickly. Or even worse, we heard about a principal investigator who assigned a secretary the task of taking the test for all the people in the laboratory so they wouldn't be bothered. In any case, what is missing in the training is attention to behavior, okay? Attention to the realities of the laboratory environment, attention to competition and survival in science, attention to power structures in science, and attention to the management of research projects. Virtually none of that training is oriented to behavior. What is needed is instruction that is focused on behavior, on situations that actually come up, on their own situations and their own experiences. Um, interventions, some interventions are quite ineffective. We know, for example, that uh, journals are using plagiarism detectors. But we also know that scientists are using the plagiarism, de plagiarism detectors and running their plagiarized articles through those detectors and then modifying the article just enough that it won't be caught by the plagiarism detector when it's submitted to the journal. We've heard of this happening. And scientists resent interventions by outside bodies because, of course, they feel powerless. There's a gotcha mentality that's very, very difficult for scientists to deal with. What should happen instead is that scientists should design their own interventions right there at the research site so that their own research group is not tempted to be careless or, or take actions that fall outside the, the realm of good behavior. My proposal here is collective openness at the research site, which means that the laboratory is open to questions and suggestions at all times. Questions and suggestions about anything that might appear to be amiss. Now that strategy will catch mistakes as well as misbehavior. 
thereby ensuring good science in the sense of science as it should be done and science that meets the highest ethical standards. Collective openness is extremely important at the research site and is a scientist-oriented form of intervention. Now, as for the research system, which is largely ignored, scientists need to pay attention to the forces at work in the scientific environment. Young scientists need to learn how to cope with the stresses of science, need to learn how to cope with failure, pressure, stress, how to get themselves out of bad situations without cutting corners or faking data or stealing ideas or violating policies. Experienced scientists need to talk openly and directly to those young scientists and show them how to, how to deal with the research system without engaging in inappropriate or irresponsible behavior. Experienced scientists have all had you know, unjust reviews, have all been under pressure and learned how to deal with it. They need to talk to the young uh, scientists without trying to maintain some sort of competitive bravado. Now, as promised, I, uh, those, those are the steps that we've now, um, I've now suggested are more useful than, than the way the system is actually developed in the U.S. Now, I told you I would get to international, and of course, everything I've said to you is even more complicated in the national context. A great deal of research is being done cross-nationally at this point, and when problems arise, when ethical problems, problems of research integrity arise in the international context, they're often attributed to differences in culture and language. Oh, it was all a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding. It's all due to cultural differences. But what we ignore are differences in research systems that often give rise to very difficult situations, integrity situations, in the cross-national context. There are differences in how research is organized. The relationship between government priorities and research initiatives is much tighter in, for example, China than in the UK or in the US. Uh, the existence of uh, research infrastructure is very different in Germany than the Democratic Republic of Congo. In some cases, the diplomatic corps has a role to play. Uh, for example, in some countries, there's a national interest in controlling information about the incidence of AIDS or the spread of HIV. And those structures um, must be taken into account in the research, um, uh, in research programs themselves. There are differences in funding. Institutional arrangements can be very difficult. The U.S. does not make it easy to engage in cross-national research. What is perhaps the greater challenge with regard to funding is illegitimate funding. We know that corruption and bribes are um, a prominent component of the modus operandi in some countries. But, for instance, U.S. researchers fall under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, whereby they're forbidden from accepting or giving bribes. But in some countries, you're not going to get your research done without involving bribes. And so we've heard of researchers who build in facilitation fees into their grants, and that will be the money that will cover the bribes they need to get their research equipment from the loading dock actually to the research site. So um, there are differences in legal and regulatory systems that can affect all manner of, of aspects of the research systems. Um, these situations, regulatory situations, can be 
become very complicated in the cross-national context. Here is the situation. There was a UK researcher who had a very good idea. And she submitted her proposal to one of the funding agencies, and it was reviewed by um, a researcher in the US. He said it was hogwash. He said it was terrible, um, and the research was turned down. Sometime later, the UK researcher was asked to review a proposal from the US National Institutes of, no, National Science Foundation. She opened it up, and it was word for word, line by line, her own proposal. So he had turned around and submitted it to his own National Science Foundation. Now, that was a very, very difficult situation because, of course, it fell under two different regulatory systems. And because it was a matter of review, everything was protected by the confidentiality of the review system. So it was very, very difficult to deal with that system um, in a regulatory manner. Um, there are legal issues that can become very difficult. The US regulates materials that have um, military applications. And you'd be amazed what falls under that kind of provision. I come from Minnesota. There are 15,000 lakes within the state of Minnesota. So we do a lot of lake bed research. And there were some researchers in Iceland who wanted to use equipment developed at the University of Minnesota to map the bottom of the lake bed. Now, that equipment included a sensor um, up on the boat to compensate for the movement of the boat at the top of the lake. And that sensor is also used in missile guidance systems. So, of course, the entire thing fell under ITAR, which is the International Traffic in, in Arms Regulations. It was very, very difficult to use that lake bed mapping equipment in the climate change research in, in Iceland. Okay, now, now this is just to make it even more complicated. I said that, that equipment materials that fall under military usage are protected and are controlled by the US, export controlled. But items and materials include information. So if you share information with somebody from a country that is seen as a security threat or that has state-sponsored terrorism, then you are in trouble if you've shared information with them. So that means that in some contexts, the Chinese students would have to be physically separated from the other students um, if work falls under these kinds of export regulations. Okay. And now, there are provisions for exemption for research that is basic or applied or that would be published in any, in any case. But the point is you can get into a lot of trouble because it includes um, not only instruction, instructional situations, research settings, but laptop computers. Simply having the information on your laptop computer and going to one of those countries makes you in violation. Simply having it on the computer, because there's no way to verify that someone didn't, didn't copy it off your computer at some critical juncture during your trip. The international implication is that if you are working under US funding, that is, with a US collaborator or with money from the National Institutes of Health, you fall under these regulations. And the entire project can be jeopardized if you are engaging in behaviors that violate any of these policies. The entire project could be, could be um, in trouble. So these, these differences in legal and regulatory measures are very serious complications in international research collaborations. And of course, as you well know, there are differences in graduate education. I mean, if you go to Germany and ask who the graduate students are, they, they don't know. 
because you're not registered as a doctoral student until you're ready to have the degree um, awarded. You can find out more of these things um, in the book that Nick Stenick and I edited, International Research Collaborations. It's mentioned on the handout that I gave you. Now, what about progress in the international arena? There have been international efforts in research ethics, but not so many specifically in the area of integrity, research integrity, until recently. In 2007, the Global Science Forum took it up, studied it, had a number of meetings, and issued a report, Best Practices for Ensuring Scientific Integrity and Preventing Misconduct. That's on your handout as well. Um, there have also been two world conferences, 2007 in Lisbon, this past summer in 2010 in Singapore, that have brought together over 300 people from over 50 countries on each occasion to consider research integrity on a worldwide basis. And the Singapore conference um, produced a Singapore statement, and you've got, you have a copy there of the Singapore statement, which is just a first step toward coming to some kind of global understanding of research integrity issues. It's a set of principles and professional responsibilities that are intended to be um, a, a starting point for the development of policies and codes worldwide. Not everyone will agree with everything that's on the Singapore Statement, but it's intended to be provocative, intended to generate attention to research integrity locally, furthering harmonization where possible, and localization where necessary. So with that, I thank you for your attention. I look forward to your comments.